This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Good evening and welcome. My name is Fred Paul and you are watching ADH TV, the new home for common sense commentary in Australia. Well, it's official. Anthony Albanese and Dan Andrews would prefer to destroy the foundations of Australia's prosperity, which is cheap and reliable energy, than yield to the blindingly obvious truth that sunshine and wind cannot power an industrialized country. The consequence of their catastrophic ignorance will be thousands of Australians freezing in the dark as soon as next winter, businesses bankrupted by impossibly high power bills and entire industries shipped off overseas to places where cheap energy and cheap labour are abundant. Places like, you know, China. And the final insult in this excruciating suicide plan, they are doing it with your money. You'd think that destroying a nation's economic prosperity would be cheap, but no, these two clowns can't even do that without dipping into your pocket first. Their strategy is going to cost you an upfront charge of a lazy $23 billion. That's 23,000 million. Imagine the schools, hospitals, and housing estates for impoverished single mothers the type that Albo keeps reminding us he grew up in, that money could buy. The nine kilometre North Connects Tunnel in Northwest Sydney, for example, which has dramatically reduced traffic in the region, cost a paltry three billion by comparison. Most of the money in Albo and Andrew's suicidal plan goes to the so-called Rewiring the Nation project. That's where the government installs a new network of towers and electrical wires to connect homes and industries to the windmills, solar panels, and batteries they plan to blot all over our landscape. This will, this will replace the perfectly good towers and electrical wires connecting homes and industries to existing coal-fired power plants, which are also perfectly functional despite being in a state of decline thanks to the government earmarking them for obsolescence. They're doing this because to not do so would be to destroy the planet because, you know, climate change. 
So instead, tons and tons of metal must be dug up out of the ground and millions of man hours must be wasted replacing our existing infrastructure with an energy system that is more expensive and less reliable. It's also less ethical, given that some of the solar panels are made in China by Uyghur slaves and the batteries contain cobalt dug up by child labourers in Congo. One of the projects the new towers and wires will connect to is a proposed forest of windmills in the ocean off Gippsland in the state's east, which when it's built will initially produce two gigawatts of power, assuming the wind is blowing that is. Albo and Andrews don't mention it, but this forest of windmills will take up a massive 147 square kilometres of ocean. And that's just the start of it. According to the state's proposal, more windmills will be added, enough to generate 15 gigawatts, taking up 900 square kilometres of ocean. The timing of their joint press conference yesterday was so convenient and so earnest in its promise to save the earth from a climate catastrophe that they simply forgot how obnoxiously offensive they were being. Albo flew down to Victoria, not on a solar-powered plane, of course, to announce this plan just five weeks out from a state election. That's him using your money to prop up his mate, Premier Dan Andrews, who is so on the nose even in his own electorate that he doesn't dare appear on the street for more than a couple of minutes, lest he cops a well-earned spray or worse from someone who has lost everything in arguably the most pointless lockdown of citizens in world history. Andrews's slogan then during the lockdown was staying apart keeps us together, which if he wins the forthcoming state Victorian election will be replaced by expensive unreliable energy keeps us warm. The whole press conference yesterday was predicated on the lie that renewables can produce energy cheaper than coal, gas, or, heaven forbid, uranium. And it produces jobs, Andrews said, quote, Victoria has cut emissions by more than any other state, tripled the amount of renewable energy and created thousands of jobs. We're not just talking about climate action, we're getting on with it. He's getting on with it all right. By next winter, Victorians will be facing a similar catastrophe as Europe is now, where a lack of energy produced by fossil fuels is forcing people to chop down trees to stay warm. In Britain, Prime Minister Liz Truss has been forced to reduce the 150 billion pounds she set aside to subsidise domestic power bills this winter, part of an economic plan so unrealistic that it might make her prime ministership the shortest in British history. Meanwhile, Britain sits on enough shale gas to produce about a fifth of its domestic consumption. Victoria is in the same situation. It sits on an abundance of shale and natural gas as well, while the Premier, Dan Andrews, bans people from connecting their homes to the gas network and forces the state to adopt wind and solar. Albo and Dan Andrews have gone so far down the renewable rabbit hole that all we can see is their furry tails disappearing into the darkness. Anybody who follows them into that abyss is dead set bonkers.
Well, when she was the opposition's foreign affairs spokesperson in 2018, Senator Penny Wong made it clear that she opposed the moving of the Australian Embassy in Israel to Jerusalem. Here she is back then. The problem is making an announcement like this in the way that he has really signals to the community and to the international community that he's prepared, Mr Morrison's prepared to play domestic politics uh, with, national in, with national, with foreign policy. It's extraordinary. And here she is yesterday trying not to show her irritation with the former government's policy as she announces her government's reversal of it to no longer recognise West Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. This reverses the Morrison government's recognition of West Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. Australia's embassy, of course, has always been and remains in Tel Aviv. Uh, the Australian government remains committed to a two-state solution in which Israel and a future Palestinian state can coexist in peace and security within internationally recognised borders. We will not support an approach that undermines this prospect. Notice that she supports the two-state solution and the quote-unquote future Palestinian state. There are 138 countries that currently recognise Palestine. Like Australia, however, most G20 democracies do not. Make of Penny Wong's press conference yesterday what you will, but it seems likely that Australia will soon join the camp that recognises Palestine. This Labor government's contempt for Israel, and in some instances the Jewish people, is sometimes disturbingly clear to see. To discuss the significance of this, let's bring in the president of the Australian Jewish Association, Dr. David Adler. David, welcome. Thank you, Fred, and it's a pleasure to join you today. David, firstly, most Australians might think of this as a bit of a triviality, but what is the symbolic significance of Jerusalem to Israel and even to people who live in Western civilizations around the world? Well, it's, it's enormous, uh, Fred. Uh, firstly, it needs to be pointed out that uh, Israel is the only country on earth in which uh, Australia now does not recognise its nominated capital. Every other country can say, this city is our capital and Australia will recognise it and treat it accordingly. Uh, it is contrary to the whole historical uh, evidence uh, Israel has had previously as the kingdom of Israel under King David and King Solomon, Jerusalem as the capital for over 3,000 years. Yes, it's been conquered and occupied and various people have been through it. The significance worldwide, of course, is that it's become symbolic of values, almost dividing those that support Western civilization from those that don't those that support the ethics and the values of democracy and Western civilization generally because the Judeo-Christian uh, foundations, of course, began in Israel. Uh, so it, it is highly symbolic. Um, and also from an international law point of view, from a reality on the ground point of view, what Penny Wong has done is certainly retrograde. Uh, her sorry, sorry to interrupt, that, but can I, can I just, can I just do, do you think Australians understand the symbolism of, of Jerusalem enough? So we'll get onto those points you're about to make in a minute, but hmm. 
do you think we understand the symbolism, symbolism of Jerusalem adequately enough? Probably not. I mean, it was interesting, uh, Jordan Peterson was uh, in Jerusalem not long ago, and with tears in his eye, he explained how uh, the future of the world has often revolved around events that have happened uh, in Jerusalem. And um, you, you can see it. Australia has a great tradition uh, there. Um, in a few days, at the end of October, is the anniversary of the Battle of Beersheba, where the Anzacs uh, fought in what became known as their greatest victory of World War One, the Charge of the Light Horse Brigades, which cleared the roadway uh, towards Jerusalem, which was liberated six weeks later. So, so many things through history, through religion, through culture, through civilization have the heartbeat of Jerusalem. Uh, as the basis. But even if you're not into all that stuff, um, you go to Israel and you see the parliament, the Knesset is in Jerusalem. You see the Supreme Court, the highest court of the land is in Jerusalem. Um, you see that the prime minister's residence and the other, and most of the uh, government departments are there. It meets the definition of the capital of a state. But how would, just, just playing devil's advocate here, how would moving the embassy hmm. compromise that? Uh, it wouldn't. It couldn't compromise it. I mean, we, we saw a, a grand experiment uh, a few years ago when uh, President then, then President Donald Trump uh, decided that he would actually implement American law and recognise uh, Jerusalem as the capital of Israel and move the US embassy um, to Jerusalem. And there were the naysayers who said, oh, this is going to provoke conflict. Uh, there are going to be riots. There are going to be attacks. And after a very short period of time, the reverse occurred. And it actually uh, heralded in uh, what became known as the Abraham Accords, which was a set of peace deals between Israel and the more moderate uh, Arab states. So we often sit back in our comfortable um, Western uh, environments and think, oh, we, we know how things work. But the values in the Middle East are different. And it's actually principle and strength which are respected uh, in the Middle East. And respect uh, gains more results than uh, the sort of compromise negotiations that we're, sort, we're used to doing uh, in the West. Well, I, so I don't. What, yeah, I, I don't think this. I don't think this move's getting much respect in, in Israel. I mean, the the Israeli Prime Minister um, Yair Lapid tweeted, "quote We can only mm. hope that the Australian government manages other matters more seriously and professionally." Now, that's a very Indeed. diplomatic insult, don't you think? It's uh, the first of its kind, as far as I know. Uh, Australia has been. Uh, a reasonably close ally with Israel um, since uh, it was first recognised through a resolution in the United Nations uh, in 1947 and then fought its war of independence in 1948, became uh, a state. And ever since then, there's been a, a reasonably close working relationship. I don't think there has ever been an occasion where an Israel Prime Minister has given such a backhand insult, um, basically saying 
uh, Australia, you're acting in a shoddy and unprofessional way. And frankly, on, on this occasion, um, he's right. He went on to add that uh, Jerusalem uh, is the eternal and united capital of Israel, and that will never change. And indeed, that is Israeli law, that Jerusalem is the eternal and united capital. So we have here Penny Wong um, sort of challenging and undermining the law of a close ally, which is quite extraordinary. Well, and I think she's revealing uh, what side she prefers to put Australia on. The Gaza mm. Strip, which is part of the Palestinian territories, is run by Hamas, a proscribed terrorist, or terrorist organisation that doesn't recognise Israel. What was Hamas's response to Penny Wong's announcement, David? Well, uh, here we have another precedent. I think it is the first time ever that a prescribed terrorist organisation has praised an Australian policy change. And if you need an indicator of whether you're on the correct side or not, that's a pretty powerful indicator that you're on the wrong side. Uh, Hamas, uh, in its charter, um, es essentially calls for the elimination of Israel. Uh, so it's it's a terrible situation that Australia should be notionally in bed with um, such an organisation from a policy perspective. Well, even the United States under President Joe Biden, who is nauseatingly even more woke than Penny Wong, even the United States is keeping its embassy in Jerusalem. So, I mean, Penny Wong is kind of putting us out on a limb here, isn't she? Uh, in, in terms of Western societies, uh, I don't think there's ever been one that has unrecognised uh, Jerusalem as the capital. And you're quite right. Uh, I, I wouldn't often say uh, President Biden to his credit, um, but on this occasion, I can say <laughs> President Biden to his credit has accepted the reform of Donald Trump in recognising Jerusalem and moving the embassy and has said quite clearly, um, that's fine, we're not going to undo it, uh, it's working um, and has not caused uh, any frictional conflict. If anything, it's, it's helped with the peace process with the moderate Arabs. So much of this is this story is unprecedented, David, including you mm. giving credit to Joe Biden. Do you think Penny Wong will recognise Palestine next? Uh, look, it's a risk. Um, we are worried about it. Uh, and one of the interesting things is that it was put into uh, the Labor Party platform, I think, in March last year. Uh, and there were a couple of moderate voices at the uh, conference, which was held as a virtual conference online because we were in the middle of the pandemic uh, last year. Uh, one of those moderate voices was uh, Michael Danby. Uh, Michael um, is, was a member of parliament um, for a Jewish area in, in Melbourne, and he wanted an opportunity to speak at the conference. Um, he wanted not to reject the, uh, the motion, but to modify it with conditions. So, for example, that uh, before recognising a state of Palestine, the Palestinian Authority would have to disavow terrorism and stop paying terrorists, uh, conditions like that. He was gagged. He was not allowed to speak. 
So the current uh, Labor Party platform has unconditional recognition of a state of Palestine, even if it continues to be a jihadist um, program, which involves training kids to be terrorists and then paying terrorists or firing rockets or or whatever. It's it's a, a very ugly situation. It's an ugly policy for a democracy to have. Well, well let's, let's look at how this plays back home. Penny Wong accused Scott Morrison of playing domestic politics with this in 2018. Correct. But there might be a bit of domestic politics being played by her as well. What are the benefits at home for this policy, do you think, David? Well, firstly, let me say that I, I think that some of her criticisms of Scott Morrison uh, are valid. Uh, it was handled very badly by former Prime Minister Scott Morrison. He raised it um, during the Wentworth by-election. It was seen as a bit of a political stunt to try to appeal to the voters of Wentworth, which has a significant Jewish community, as you know. And then he came out with this decision of recognising what is really a non-existent entity um, called West Jerusalem. I mean, there is Jerusalem. There is no uh, East and West. And for nearly all of its 3,000 years, that's been the case. So her criticisms are valid. And Scott Morrison had a policy that's a bit akin to being half pregnant. Uh, now, what her motivations are for undoing it, um, making the announcement during a Jewish high holiday and two weeks before the next election in Israel is really weird timing. It's really odd. Uh, I can't ascribe logic to it. But, but uh, domestically, have... well, I mean, if she's trying to appeal to, for example, the uh, Muslim uh, um, vote. Yeah, perhaps. Uh, what, I mean, do they, are, outnumber, they outnumber uh, the Jewish vote in Australia, don't they? By, by at least six to one. Um, there are roughly 100,000 um, Jews in Australia and a bit over 600,000 Muslims. So if you're playing the pure politics and you want to consolidate, um, say, a vote in certain electorates in Western Sydney and uh, um, Northwestern Melbourne, um, then this is probably a, a policy which would have appeal in, in those electorates. It might be as simple as that, um, Fred. I, I think that has to be brought, brought out with some pretty uh, pointed questioning in Parliament and Senate estimates. I think so. I mean, it, it's, it's always dangerous to suggest that any politician is playing to any particular ethnic group because we are all mm. Australians. Anyway, uh, we'll, get, we'll get back to that some other time. Just quickly before you go, David, we've only got a few seconds left. Penny Wong seems to think she has a clear view of the path to peace in the Middle East. Do you think she has? Uh, absolutely not. Um, uh, look, what, what she's proposing is essentially like uh, the Gaza experiment. Israel withdrew from Gaza um, and it's become uh, not a peaceful area, which was why Israel withdrew as a gesture for peace, but rather it was taken over by a jihadist terrorist group called Hamas and there's also a significant presence of Palestinian Islamic Jihad. A polling shows that if there was the opportunity in Judea Samaria, which some call the West Bank, then uh, Hamas would gain control there as well. We would end up 
with another um, terrorist failed state. And this is what uh, Michael Danby and others were on. Uh, before we take this step, let's get in place um, some proper conditions that would at least give it a chance of being a peaceful outcome. So um, what Penny Wong has done is actually set back the peace process. Um, she is rewarding those who have been belligerent, who are ignoring the reality, which is that Israel has a capital city called Jerusalem. And rather than um, progress uh, um, peace, um, those that want to fight for an unrealistic objective have been rewarded. Well, it's a grim situation. David Adler, thanks so much for your time. Thank you so much, Fred. That's David Adler, the president of the Australian Jewish Association. Well, at its heart, wokeism isn't about creating a more progressive society, equality for all, or furthering the, the ideals of the Enlightenment. No, wokeism is actually all about, to put it politely, reducing the world's human population and replacing it with nature. It makes sense when you think about it. If you think, as wokesters do, that all human behaviour is evil and destructive, then it goes without saying that losing a few humans from the Earth's ecosystem is a positive development. We've seen, we've seen this on our beaches for the past 20 years, where the researchers who have enabled lethal sharks to flourish are the same people who dismiss fatal attacks as an unavoidable and even acceptable cost of restoring the aquatic environment to its pristine, pre-human state. Sharks have as many rights as people, you see. Well, if that wasn't mad enough, now a councillor in Mornington, south of Melbourne, wants to give, quote-unquote, rights to trees. Yes, that's right. Mornington councillor Deborah Ma says it's time to, quote, adopt a new paradigm of thinking about trees, unquote. Councillor Ma is fuming that noisy chainsaws are being used to chop down trees to create more space for people. She said, quote, the future depends on what we do now for nature and our communities. We need to look at how rights of nature could be incorporated into our bushfire management overlay. We've cleared too much wildlife habit habitat already. Honestly, if you choose to live in a bushfire zone, then you have to accept the risk that comes with that, unquote. Got that, you evil human? You can roast in your home if, for the crime of wanting to live in the same shire as the sanctimonious Ma. But the good counsellor doesn't seem to have thought this one through. The legal implications are significant. The Institute of Public Affairs spokeswoman Dr Bella Debrera said people might in future need to ask their lawns for permission to mow them. And another Mornington counsellor, Susan Bissington, said amusingly, quote, the Shire is going to be in a very precarious position where it could actually be sued by a tree, unquote. Don't laugh. In a courtroom showdown between a tree and Councillor Ma, the tree would win hands down. Well, in times of genuine crisis, dropping bombs means doing something like this. There you are. Bombs 
But in these more peaceful and less troubled times, dropping a bomb is a whole lot less destructive, even if it does cost, if you'll pardon the pun, a bomb. The Bureau of Meteorology announced this week that it no longer wanted to be called by its acronym, BOMB, and instead wants to be referred to as the Bureau. It paid a consultant a crazy 70 grand of your money to manage this transition. You'll pardon us at ADHTV if we refuse to go along with this bureaucratic order and continue to call the department the bomb. Or perhaps more accurately, inveterate manipulators of past observations and sensational tamperers of expected rainfall science. Or imposters for short. One person who finds this as amusing as I do is Stephen Senatiempo, the breakfast host on 2CC Talkback Radio in Canberra. Stephen, welcome. G'day, Fred. I, I mean, seriously, if it wasn't so serious that we had people losing their homes and potentially losing their lives because of, fred, of you know, floods at the moment, you would take this. Um, it's just extraordinary. But let it me is. first say that, you know, yeah. I think the Bureau of Meteorology, they are the bomb, man, seriously. Um, but, you know, what really got me about the press release was it's almost like they were in, in, in using the royal we. It was like, well, now we want to be known as the Bureau of Meteorology in the first instance, and then subsequently as the Bureau. So it's like, you know, when you meet the Queen, you first address her as your majesty, and then subsequently as <laughs> ma'am, not ma'am. And I'm thinking, who comes up? Now, you say it costs $70,000 $70, to a consultant, but how many of these six-figure boffins sat around a table for hours first deciding that they were going to hire this consultant in the first place? Now, if this isn't evidence that our public service and our bureaucracy is bloated and needs to be cut through with a scythe, I don't know what is. And, and currently we've got Katie Gallagher out there saying, oh, we need to expand the APS and we're going to bring all the consultants back in-house and we're going to grow the public service. That's all well and good if you want to bolster the vote of the ACT, Greens and Labor government. But if you actually want to run a government that is... Because let's not forget that they went to the election, you know, we're going to cut all the rorts and we're going to stop the waste... Well, if this isn't waste, I don't know what is. Well, and then on good. top of that, we've got Tanya Plibersek trying to blame the previous government for it. <laughs> well, I mean, it, it, the timing of it is just ridiculous. As you said a minute ago, you know, this is such an insensitive time for the, for the bomb hmm. to be focusing on, on its own image when people are losing their homes in floods. Even if this had been a long-term plan and they had been for years, you know, annoyed by the, the name they had, Shouldn't they have waited a little bit after these floods to come out with this press release? It, of course they should have. But but more importantly, they didn't put it out as a press release. They put it out as a media alert. Now, when you saw a media alert from the bomb, that means there's some major weather event happening that you need to tell your listeners or your viewers or your readers about urgently because their life might be in danger or they need to protect their property or whatever, not protect the sensitive sensibilities of the boffins at the Bureau of Meteorology. I mean, goodness me. Exactly. It's just extraordinary. I mean, we're talking about an organisation here who can't tell me what the difference between partly cloudy and mostly sunny is. <laughs> they usually get their forecast wrong and they're worried about what we call them. Well, Seriously. Let's, talk, let's talk about their accuracy. I mean, it, the the press release or the media announcement that you, that you said it said, quote, with an ever-increasing number of severe weather events, it is more crucial than ever that the Bureau of Meteorology's insights, wisdom, data and information are shared, understood and acted upon, unquote. Wisdom? 
What's oh, no, the wisdom I, of this? I nearly fell off my chair when I saw the wisdom bit. Seriously, I I read all of it. And I thought, they're not. And then when I saw wisdom, uh, wisdom. Seriously, <laughs> this is ridiculous. It is. Yeah. Well, I mean, just, even now, the just ga- to put it. Go on. Give you a bit of perspective. It is. It's sunny in Canberra today, but apparently it's partly cloudy. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the sort of wisdom that I can uh, do without. But even The Guardian yes. saw the humour in this. I mean, when The Guardian reported on this, at the end of its piece, it cheekily advised its readers who wanted to find out more about this name change to go to, wait for it, bomb.gov.au or download the yes. BOM app. <laughs> I mean, they've even lost The Guardian, Stephen. It's, a, it's game over for them, isn't it? But more importantly, I mean, this is the point. And as they, as you say, they paid a consultant stupid amounts of money to come up with this decision, but they didn't even get around to changing their Twitter handles or making sure the websites were up to date first. Yeah. Somebody else has gone and registered the Twitter handles, apparently. I mean, oh. you know, you, you can't write this stuff. No, you can't. All right, well, let's, let's stay in Canberra, but let's talk about Katie Gallagher, who most people got to know as uh, one of Labor's mean girls, But what most people don't realise is that Gallagher rose through the Labor ranks as Chief Minister of the ACT. Now she's Federal Minister for Finance, which puts her in an interesting situation regarding a federal loan to the ACT. Tell us about that. Yeah, well, the the ACT has a a historic public housing debt to the federal government of approximately $100 million. I think it might be about $93 million that they're paying interest on. And for a long time now, the ACT Labor government has insisted that the federal government should waive this debt because apparently they did it for Tasmania and they did it for South Australia. And they haven't quite worked out yet that the ACT is not a state and that the federal government, when it handed over... Uh, self-determination or self-government or whatever you want to call it to the ACT also gave them a bunch of infrastructure for free that they didn't give the states. But that aside, they want the government to forgive this debt because they insist that if if they don't have to pay all this interest, they can then put that money into public housing, which is sorely needed here in the ACT, despite the fact that every bit of money they get that they say they're going to put into public housing, they actually put into a tram. But that's a a story for another day. But Katie Gallagher, as, as late as last year in Senate estimates grilled former ACT Liberal Senator Zed Seselger about why the Morrison government hasn't forgiven this debt. He's an assistant minister. He's an ACT senator. Why isn't he doing something about this? And Zed's response well, was, I'm an assistant minister, but not actually in this policy area, Katie. There's not really a lot I can do about it. Well, flip side now, Katie Gallagher is the finance minister, the person who is actually in charge of this debt, and she's now said, well, I can't do anything about this. I'm not, a, I'm not a minister for the ACT. I'm a minister for the whole country. It's extraordinary. <laughs> she must have terrible conversations with herself, arguing uh, in, in, on one hand to uh, pardon the debt and the other hand to make herself pay up. Oh, it's, but it goes one step further that the, the opposition here in the ACT uh, moved a motion in the Assembly this afternoon for all the party leaders, so the Labor, Greens and Liberals, to write to Katie Gallagher and condemn her on this backflip. Now, I don't know what the result of that is yet, but it's going to be very interesting to see the mental gymnastics that Labor and the Greens try and play to suggest that, well, no, now that it's Katie, we're not that concerned about it anymore. Yeah, it's all about whichever side you're on. Anyway, it's just shuffling a a lazy hundred mil from one government to another. It doesn't, it's no skin off their nose, is it? No, exactly. That's right. And, you know, they always promise to put the money into certain things and they never do. Uh, All of the money in the ACT goes to their bright red train 
that uh, runs down the middle of Northbourne Avenue. And, and I pointed this out to my producer the other day. You know, there's a certain irony that when you used to drive into Canberra down that beautiful tree-lined avenue, it's the greens that cut the trees down. <laughs> oh, goodness me, the greens. Anyway, well, let's talk about, let's continue on this wokeness thread and let's talk about sport. Our sports stars are just getting more and more ridiculous. Firstly, it was the national netball team objecting to sponsorship from Gina Reinhardt. Then it was one day international cricket team captain Pat Cummins saying he didn't like the team's sponsor, Alinta. Well, there's been another development today, Stephen, as you've probably heard, Fremantle Dockers AFL Club. Some prominent supporters are calling for the club to drop sponsorship from oil and gas giant Woodside. One of them is former player Dale Kickett, who played for the Eagles, the Saints, the Bombers, and finally the Dockers, so he knows a thing or two about loyalty. Should the Dockers reject mm. this money, Stephen? <laughs> Look, what this was, this whole saga from the netball through to the cricket through to the Dockers has proved is why these people are sports people and not rocket scientists. There's clearly not a lot going on up upstairs. Are the Dockers now going to refuse to play under lights? Uh, are every single one of these players, are they all driving electric cars that are purely charged from solar energy? Or are they maybe driving expensive sports cars that use fuel? You know, uh, are they are they wearing leather boots that have been made in a factory that require fossil fuels to actually drive the factory? You know, let's be fair income about this. If you stop fossil fuel sponsorships in Western Australia, there'll be nothing left. What are they going to do? Have the female Dockers proudly brought to you by the Cable Beach Motel? <laughs> I mean, who else is there in WA? The entire economy would shut down. Exactly. But what I find really disappointing is this, this kind of recent phenomenon that sports stars feel they need to uh, align themselves with certain values. When I, the country that I grew up in, Stephen, and you too, we thought sport was inspirational on its own. You know, these are people who yeah. fought hard to achieve their dreams. And, you know, when they finally get to hoist the cup or stand on a podium or win a race or whatever, they inspired us. But now, oh, mate, I tell you, all they do is bore me to tears. Well, but the, it's the, the rank hypocrisy of it, Fred, is that when a sports star behaves badly, like, you know, we see it in rugby league all the time, the allegations of domestic violence and the like and violence against women. In the AFL, we see the drug scandals and the like. Uh, in every sport, we see these off-field scandals and never once do any of the fellow players stand up and say, no, no, this isn't good enough. You are bringing our game into disrepute. But goodness me, don't take sponsorship from Alinta. Yeah, exactly. And And all, you know kneel, you know, kneel in a circle before, a, you know, for Black Lives Matter and, you know, oh, and, and, yeah. and playing in all those rounds that are tributes to woke causes. Mate, I, I grew up watching AFL and I, I, I can barely watch it anymore. I find it just too, uh, too dictatorial, too it's bashing you over the head with, with uh, values. But anyway, let's move on to <laughs> talk about bashing you over sure. the head. Let's talk about ABC presenter Patricia, Car Patricia Carvellis. She's defended her mm. older colleague, Fran Kelly, against accusations that she's too old for TV. Now, Janet Albrechtson has a great piece in the odds today saying that Carvellis was merely defending her friend because not, not because she's not too old, but because she's also female and gay. So uh, um, yeah. Janet Albrechtson uh, says, quote, when Carvella says it is important for TV screens to have an older gay woman on it, what she means is it is okay to discriminate. Stephen, where will all this identity politics end, mate? 
Well, look, the only place it can end is if we actually keep speaking out about it. But, you know, they keep talking about it's okay to... Well, apparently it's okay to cancel somebody who's pale, male and stale, but if you don't fit into one of those three categories, uh, you know, you can't be discriminated against. It's just absolutely extraordinary that we keep talking about inclusivity, and that's the, the word they use. We want to be inclusive. Inclusive apparently means excluding anybody you don't like. I mean, just by sheer <laughs> definition, they don't even hold, uphold their own... Uh, standards here. And look, is anybody surprised that Patricia, Patricia Carvelis has come out and, you know, she'll stand, she'll stand for freedom and, and uh, inclusivity when it, when it's one of her mates that suits her particular view of the world. But if it's anybody else, well, no, they can make their own arrangements. Well, people, pale male and stale blokes have too much white privilege anyway, Stephen. There's no, there's no place for them on the ABC. <laughs> I still feel 25. <laughs> well, you'll look at too, mate. Thanks so much for your time. Talk to you next week. That's Stephen Senatiempo, the breakfast host of 2CC Talkback Radio in Canberra. And just before I go, it's early days yet, but are we witnessing the end of one of the most evil regimes of our lifetime, the theocratic government of Iran? Protests in the country took off after the death in custody of 22-year-old Masa Amini, who had been arrested by the morality police for not wearing a hijab in Tehran on September 16. Since then, it is young women who have led the resistance against this oppressive regime, although there have also been instances of men standing up too. One video I saw on Instagram this week included a man trying to intervene in the kidnapping of a woman, presumably by the government's morality police. The incident is obscured by a truck, but it looks like the man, who you can see wearing jeans on the right of the screen, was shot for heroically trying to save the woman. These videos are leaked out, but we never find out what happens to the victims. Needless to say, this is the same regime that received plane loads of cash, totaling $1.7 billion from former US President Barack Obama in 2016, partly for the release of American hostages and partly so Iran would promise not to pursue nuclear weapons. Naturally, Iran failed to uphold its part of the deal and continued to develop its nuclear capabilities anyway, and Donald Trump subsequently tore up the deal. Obama's Vice President Joe Biden, who is now the president, is cozying up to Iran again. Biden, like most world leaders, has been conspicuously quiet about the uprising of the Iranian people. You gotta wonder if any world leaders really believe in freedom anymore. Well, that's all from me. Thanks for watching. Don't forget to tune in tomorrow night at eight for the great Alan Jones giving a voice to the voiceless here on ADH TV. And I'll see you straight after him at nine. Good night.